If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg, and my friends, today's episode, we are going to be talking about crafting stories that fuel your capital campaign with Whitney Anderson. In preparing for this episode, I scratched my head and I asked myself, when was the last time we did an episode on capital campaigns? And my friends, I'm kind of ashamed to say we are long overdue for a capital campaign episode. It has been over 250 episodes ago. And I also smile when I say that because I cannot believe that I can now say that over 250 episodes ago, we did anything. But it is long overdue, and I'm very, very pleased that we were able to have Whitney Anderson come and have this conversation with us today. When I did my research on Whitney, there's one thing that stands out in her 12-year journey from college freshman to Ph.D., And that one thing is the power of stories. Like, you literally see the way stories work in the arc of her educational career. Her undergrad is in PR and also in English. And then in grad school, both master's degree and PhD, she went on and studied communications. And not surprisingly, there's also one thing that stands out in her career since college. Her career since college is all about communication. She has taught communications at the college level. She has written grant proposals professionally, which anyone who's done that knows that's all about good communication. And she leads capital campaigns as a consultant. And once again, if you're a consultant facilitating a capital campaign project, it's communication with your capital campaign team, communication with prospective donors, communication with other stakeholders. So when I looked at the arc through her career, it just turns out to be communication. But today, she is the principal consultant for campaign services with Fox Advancement. And just to give you a scope of the work that she does, she and the firm manage 10 to 12 campaigns annually. And that's kind of incredible. Most of us who have been development directors, if we're lucky, we do one or two capital campaigns over the course of a year. And many of us who've been an executive director have never done even a single real, actual 
Capital Campaign. So I feel so fortunate that we have Whitney Anderson joining us today. Hey, Whitney, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Dolph, and thank you for that kind introduction. Thank you. Of course, of course. And, you know, as we were preparing for this episode, I learned something that you had shared about the ways in which developing the right stories can sometimes even be harder than building those donor relationships. Yeah. Well, when I think about preparing for a capital campaign, it's this really transformational moment in an organization's history. It's taking that leap into a new building or a renovation, or we also do endowment campaigns or campaigns related to programmatic scaling. And it really is about the stories that we tell ourselves about those efforts and the stories that we tell our donors. And I work with many clients where at the beginning of our capital campaign journey, it's all about urgency. We're outgrowing our space. We need a new building. We have to accelerate this as much as possible. And my thought is always, let's try to take this a little bit slower. Let's really think about the different dimensions of this story because some donors relate to the idea that we need cold, hard, physical space to do what we're doing. Absolutely, that's a necessity. But we think about impact too. How How is this space going to increase our impact? How is it going to lead to... Uh, a, a different future for our organization. So I always think about, you know, the, the head story and the heart story um, and how we tell that to our donors. That really does take some time. So I, I think just the pacing of any capital campaign effort needs to take into account that story building that needs to happen. So let's unpack that story building. What are those initial first building blocks of our capital campaign story? Well, I'm going to relate this back to alignment because that's a word that I think is relevant to any capital campaign effort and relevant to storytelling because these seeds are always planted first between the leadership of a nonprofit and their board of directors. So how are those conversations happening between staff and board What are the pieces of the story that align between those two parties? What are the pieces where it just doesn't quite feel right? You know how you're in meetings sometimes and it feels like you're getting closer to a conclusion that everybody feels good about, but you're not quite there. You need more conversation. You need more unpacking. So I think the story starts with some key messages that are developed between board and staff. So. I always go back to the elevator speech, which I know some people love and some people hate. It's kind of a polarizing thing. But, you know, would there be some similar messaging between the board and the executive director if they were both describing the campaign and what they were trying to achieve in 30 seconds? That's where I start. And it kind of builds from there. Um, We'll probably be talking about case statements at some point in our conversation, but you can't get to the point where you're writing this beautiful glossy brochure that describes your effort until you achieve that alignment between board and staff. So I'll stop there, but, but I think that's where it starts. And then there are other steps that come after that. 
In sharing the importance of that alignment, you talked about the fact that some people love the elevator speech and some people hate it. Now, I'm actually going to ask you to take a stand. So where do you stand on that? I love it. I am a person who is always thinking about how to refine my own messaging, whether it's presenting to clients. I I do a lot of presentations where the expectation is to pack a lot of information, valuable information into a short amount of time. So I have been working on elevator speeches in so many different contexts across my career, and I always find it to be a valuable exercise. I know for different people, elevator speech means different things. So for you, does that mean like a speech that someone gives verbatim, like, okay, there's 48 words and I've memorized all 48 words? What does it mean? Oh, that's such a good question. And I'm shaking my head, which I know none of you can see. But <laughs> no, I, I think elevator speeches need to be authentic. Mm-hmm. They need to feel natural coming off the tongue for an executive director or for a board member, for anyone who's involved in the campaign. But what we don't want is a wide spectrum of ideas about the campaign that are being put out because then we're at risk of that lack of alignment with different people hearing different things about the effort. So I generally think, you know, three to four core concepts about why this project is incredibly important. And one of those concepts can be a personal connection to the organization, which is going to be very different for everybody who's giving that speech. The others can be a little bit more standard, more prescribed, but there needs to be ownership in any good elevator speech. So walk me through this process then. So you come up with a few concepts. How do you make sure that everyone participating in the campaign actually has the right elevator speech? Well, I think, you know, having some good facilitated conversations in the early stages of the campaign to figure out what is this little cluster of ideas that we're all on board with? There's consensus around those. And then what I've done is build out a toolkit where it will have some sample language, um, which again, coaching on the fact that this is sample language and something that should be customized for each person delivering it. And also thinking about the audience, because that's so key to the elevator speech as well. It's not just having the the confidence and the ownership in that speech to give it in in different ways as you're talking to different people. It's also understanding what is the end goal of that conversation. Early on in the campaign, you're cultivating donors, you're getting the word out, you're building awareness around this effort. That's a very different elevator speech than what comes out in the latter stages of the campaign. So I've worked with many volunteers who at least like to have something to start from. And I know that I'm like that as well. If I have some text that I can read and then make it my own, that's a much easier starting place than having a blank sheet of paper. And how do you help those volunteers and those staff members kind of rehearse and fine-tune and perfect their elevator speech? I like to go back to the basics for this. Um, When I was in high school, I participated in speech and debate and spent many weekends practicing in front of cement walls and high schools around the state of North Dakota, where I'm from, really making sure that I, I sounded the way I wanted to sound. I was practicing that speech, knowing that it was going to be a little bit different when I got in front of my audience. But 
I actually heard my voice saying the words. And I love working with volunteers who are willing to go there with me to do a little bit of role playing where we're actually saying the words out loud because I'm recalling working with one client where they used a medical term in their elevator speech that one volunteer just said, I, I still don't really know if I could explain this fully hmm. if I was talking to somebody about the campaign. And I said, well, let's try to think about that a little bit differently. You don't have to use that particular word, mm -hmm. but let's try to get to the concept that makes sense to you. Because the worst thing as a volunteer is feeling nervous about your delivery or how you're going to explain something. So I always encourage talking out loud, ideally to a colleague or to, to a consultant, if they're willing to do that with you, so that you can hear and feel how that content sounds. Okay. Okay. And in what ways is your elevator speech, which is what, 30 seconds long, 45 seconds long, something like that, how is it different from your case statement? I'm so glad you you asked that question. I think of the elevator speech as, you know, if you think of a wheel of all of these different spokes being part of the overall campaign strategy, it's one of those spokes of the wheel where if you're put in a situation at a dinner party or a gathering where that inevitable question comes up, you know, what are you up to? What What's going on in your life? And you think, oh, this is the perfect opening for me to talk about this nonprofit that I'm so passionate about. You have those talking points in the back of your mind to say verbally, to open the door in that mm -hmm. situation. I think of the case statement in a, a different context. And I am so sorry. If I could just jump in real quick on that. I am always amazed. Executive directors, board members, et cetera, they're like at that event and someone comes up to them. Oh, how are you doing? Fine. And that's it. And I'm just like, wow, what a missed opportunity. Although I'll also share with you for so long as an executive director, people would say, oh, how are things going at the center? And I would respond, oh, they're, they're going really well or they're good or something like that. It took me a few years into the job before it was like, oh my gosh, Dolph, every time someone asks you that opportunity, you have the opportunity to sell, 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 not necessarily ask yeah. for money, but be like, oh, you know, we're, we're unveiling this big exhibit or, you know, hey, we have a new project starting. There's always something going on in our organization. So sorry, I just had to jump in with oh. that because I agree with you to always have that little pitch ready to go at 30 seconds. Hey, here's what I'm working on. Right. I agree with you. And I think, you know, working in the nonprofit sector, there's always so much going on and there's always so many thoughts running through your mind, but just realizing that I actually have a few talking points that I could use in that situation. It's a good thing to fall back on. So I'm so sorry, I interrupted you. You were going on no. to explain how your case statement is different. Yes. Well, I think the case statement is a really critical part of the cultivation process for donor prospects for any campaign, but I'll take it in, in sections. Uh, again, going back to that wheel analogy with the campaign case statement being one of the spokes, typically what I'm accustomed to doing is starting with a testing case statement and a feasibility study early on in the campaign where you're still figuring things out. You're figuring out what the goal is going to be. And it can be in a Word document. You know, it, it's just trying to get your vision down on paper. 
And again, thinking about, you know, what are the practical reasons for doing this for those people who really hone in on that? And what are the emotional reasons for doing it? What lives will be impacted with this new space, with this major campaign? And then from that Word document, you're gathering feedback, you're getting the really high level feedback about the concept in general. And then some people will, you know, edit your document for you. It's all good feedback, but you're collecting it all. And that eventually transitions into usually a designed brochure that you have available for donor meetings. And I've seen case statements of all shapes and sizes. I generally am a fan of the the shorter case statement that is more graphic, has more pictures, sidebars, graphs, testimonials, things like that. Um, That's just my personal preference. But it's something that you can either send ahead of time to a donor or leave as a leave behind. But it really encapsulates what you're trying to achieve. And it should state your fundraising goal and also break down how you plan to spend that money. If a portion is for bricks and mortar, a portion is for programs, whatever it may be. So it is longer than the elevator speech. It's something that's meant to be digested, but also should not be too complex because I I always say, don't let your case statement do the talking for you. Mm -hmm. That should be just one element of a donor meeting, but whoever it is, the board member, the executive director, that person is going to tell the story best. So Whitney, you just spawned three or four questions in my head, and I'm going to try to hold them and just only ask them one <laughs> at a time. Okay. So the first question that I've got is, talk to me about how story plays into your case statement. Is it the story or the arc of your organization, where it's coming from and where it's going? Are there other stories inside your case statement, like client stories or program stories? Like, Talk to me about stories. It's such a good question. I'm trying to figure out where to start with it because one thing that I have strayed away from in case statements is beginning with the organization's history because I've gotten feedback time and time again that I want to focus on the here and now, the the reason for the campaign mm-hmm. in present day. And I, I think that's really valid feedback. So I've started encapsulating that history, which I still think is important in some sort of timeline graphic Mm -hmm. or something that's easily digestible, but not necessarily text. When I think about stories and case statements, I'll use one client as an example that was doing a conservation campaign in the upper Midwest. And we spent a long time trying to figure out what ideas should be in their case statement. It was a highly technical Mm -hmm. campaign And we ended up deciding that the text itself would be slim. There would not be paragraph after paragraph of text. And we focused all of our energies into a graphic that showed the current state of affairs, the the current state of the land that they were trying to save, and what it would look like after this campaign was completed. Mm -hmm. So we called it the Good River, Bad River graphic. And... I don't think we called it that in the case statement, but internally we did. And to me, that's a great example of the power of story and visuals in a case statement. More and more, I'm finding that no matter the donor audience, it's really difficult to get people to sit down and read anything of length. 
Our attention spans are shorter. And some donors will read word for word and, and comment on what they're reading. But when I think about how to structure a case statement, it's really putting visual lines around what you want the donor to focus on, whether that's a graphic or some sort of pullout. Um, so that's something that I've learned and tried to put into practice for these case statements. Thank you. And that's helpful and not a bad segue to my second question. Because, you know, you said some donors will read word for word and ask questions and some don't. Well, my second question was going to be, earlier you said that some people might want to send the case statement ahead of time and some might want to have it as like, hey, I'm going to leave you with this printed case statement. Once again, I'm going to ask you to take a stand. Is there one way that you think is a better way than the other? I would say as a leave behind, that would be my preference for every meeting because you want to use that case statement as a tool during the conversation. If there's something that could be pointed to or more and more, our, our clients are having meetings over Zoom with their donors. So we're, we're designing cases not only to be printed physically, but also to be shown on the screen. So you can even use your tools on your computer to draw circles around something that you want the donor to pay attention to. That is really effective. And then you can leave the case for the donor to look over in more detail. The only time I would recommend sending it in advance is if you know you have a very limited amount of time. This happens sometimes with CEOs or just really busy people in general, where their expectation is that there's something to read beforehand and they come prepared with questions. That flips the script in the meeting a little bit. I don't think it's quite as powerful, but sometimes it is a necessity based on the amount of time you have. And in those very few cases when the, we know the person's executive assistant says, no, really, they need a pre-read, do you send it with any note or anything like that or no? Do you recommend that people just pop it off by email or in the mail? Depending on what the focus of your, your meeting will be, oftentimes we know, in ad, well, we should know in advance if there's a particular program or focus area of the campaign that is going to be of special interest to the person who's going to be in the meeting. I might point them to that direction within the case, say, you know, please pay special attention to this section on page two that's going to be relevant to the person who we're talking to. But also, if there is something that is not captured in the case that is sort of a hot off the presses piece of news about the organization, that's always a good thing to share in advance if you're compelled to send the case say, this is another value add. This is a place where the organization has been in the news, or I know you love that this particular program that provides food in the community. Just recently, this food drive collected X pounds of food, something like that, to really let the person know that you've done your homework on them and you're keyed into their interest. Got it. Thank you. And so as you think about all the case statements you've seen. And I bet a lot of case statements that you, you know, walk in and the organization's already created a case statement. They're like, oh, look, we already have a case statement. What are some of the biggest misses or issues that you see in case statements? Too much text, too long. What's too much text? Because, you know, I, and I'll say like, I'm a reader and a writer. So for me, 10 pages is not too much, but for most people it is. So what's too much text? 
I would relate it not so much to length and overall pages, but consecutive blocks of text that are not broken up by images, by sidebars. That's something with visual interest. Okay, so too much text, too long. What else? What are some of the biggest misses? Most cases that I read do not have enough heart in them. We know that people are driven to make decisions for very different reasons, and some donors are much more analytical than others. But I think when approaching a capital campaign, there can be this coldness about a building. And and it gets back to something I mentioned earlier what impact will this building allow an organization to make? And I I happen to be a fan of just short quotes from people who are participating in the program, um, people who really believe in what this new building or renovation will do for the organization. So um, sometimes there are a lot of statistics in case statements A lot of people love to see renderings, and I think that can be a value add in a case statement, but couple that with what's actually happening in the space. How does it compare to the current state within the organization and what's going to be different when this campaign is completed? Hmm. Yeah, that is a powerful story that this is what's going to be really different. Is there one other myth we should talk about before we take a quick detour to the off the map question? This is sort sort of a, a basic one, but a really important one. If somebody wants to make a gift, who do they contact to do that? So just closing out the case statement or having somewhere in their email, phone number, an easy way to get in contact with the development director or the executive director. Now, most people who you're talking to will be able to, to quickly Google that information or they have an existing relationship with those people. But we always want to make it as easy as possible for donors to make that gift when they're ready. So I'm going to ask an ignorant question. Let's say I'm a board member or a volunteer working on the capital campaign. I've got the case statement, and it does have the contact information for like the development director, the executive director. But I know the person I'm soliciting. I also know they happen to already have my cell phone and my email. Should I say to them, oh, I'm just going to write my, my cell phone number on here for you or no? Like actually on the printed document? I think that's fine. I mean, ideally, there's going to be a strong level of coordination between whoever that person is, that board member, that volunteer, and the staff at the organization. So again, I'm all about ease for the donor and prioritizing that top relationship for them. So I think that makes good sense. Like I said, purely ignorant question. I just thought about that and something I never thought about. It's like, yeah, what what would I do as a volunteer there? So thank you. I appreciate that. You know, I mentioned one last question, then we're jumping to the off the map question. So let's take that detour and have some fun with this particular question. So I know as a PhD candidate, you did some academic research and have some unique insight into some of the more difficult mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationships, when those relationships are really on the rocks. So I am so curious to know more about the research you've done. I tend to do research that relates to my life. Uh, I've I've done that throughout graduate school. When I was a master's student, I was in a long distance relationship at the time with the person who is now my husband. So my, my master's thesis was on conflict and long distance relationships. And then I got married when I got my PhD a few years before I defended my dissertation. And 
I am very fortunate to have a strong relationship with my mother-in-law, but many of my friends were getting married around the same time and they were telling me about their rocky in-law relationship. So I started getting really interested in this particular topic and I put out a call for people to self-identify as having a problematic mother-in-law relationship. So I I interviewed daughters-in-law who self-identified that way. And I had no problem finding participants in the study. Let's just say that. (laughs) I had uh, people come out in droves saying that they wanted to talk to me about their mother-in-law relationship. And what I was trying to isolate are these particular turning points or memorable moments, uh, milestones in anyone's life that spiked tension um, with mother-in-law relationships. And, and some of them you know, are probably not too surprising. Things like the daughter-in-law and her then boyfriend would choose to move in together or sort of violate some sort of social norm in the eyes of the mother-in-law. There was a lot of talk about family rituals. And if the daughter-in-law had a different upbringing, as most do um, with their husband, how there was just rockiness and even navigating, how do we do Christmas as part of this new family? So another layer to this is really understanding, do all mothers-in-law see their daughters-in-law's family? And the answer is no. There are very different conceptions of family and Many women who I talked to said their mother-in-law had told them that they did not consider them part of their family. So yeah, yeah, it was, it was tough research to conduct. I think these were hopefully cathartic conversations (laughs) for the women who I talked to, but I found out some, some really tough things about navigating these relationships Wow. I know before we hit record, I share with you, you know, my husband, Frank, and I have been in a relationship for 17 years. And that means Mm -hmm. I've been in a relationship with his parents for about 16 of those years. And the first few years with my mother-in-law were not the easiest relationship years ever. So so that's one of the reasons I was so fascinated by that. But I'm actually super, super grateful that we have a really good relationship now. But those first few years, that's also why I said no, because like, I think, had you asked me in my first few years... She probably did not think of me as family, but, you know, at some point I became like the rock in the front yard that would not be moved. And <laughs> and now I'm the rock that's family. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I'm glad that uh, it's, it's coming around for you. I like that analogy, the rock that can't be moved. Yeah. <laughs> I was eventually. I think there's like, well, okay, it's not going anywhere. So we, we got, we're just going to have to embrace it, you know? We're going to have to, yeah. you know, cut the grass around it and embrace it. But anyway, well, Whitney, thank you so much for joining us today. And, you know, it's always important to me that our listeners know how to reach you. And so, my friends, you can go to foxadvancement.com and you can reach Whitney from there. We're also going to put Whitney's email address in our show notes, but you can reach Whitney there. And also while you're there, you can learn more about their amazing clients and you can also learn about fundraising trends through their blog. Additionally, they have recently released some self-guided products that you can access. These are things that can actually help you sort of do some campaign visioning and that sort of thing before you're really even ready to do your feasibility study. 
And the last very generous offer that Whitney has made is that she is going to make Fox Advancement's campaign readiness checklist and also their 10 questions to ask when choosing a fundraising consultant available to you because you heard this episode. And so, again, we'll have her email address in our show notes, and that is the best way to request either the campaign readiness checklist or the 10 questions to ask when choosing a fundraising consultant. Whitney, thank you again for coming on today. I'm just so grateful you joined us. Oh, thank you so much, Dolph. I really enjoyed the conversation. And my friends, one of the other things I am always grateful for is when you subscribe, rate, or even better, write a review and share this podcast. So please, if you have not done one of those things yet, take the next step in our relationship. Please subscribe, rate, review, or share this podcast. And as I always do, I want to leave you with two other episodes that you should consider. You know, I mentioned that it had been over 250 episodes since we talked about capital campaigns. And the last one was episode 39, Successful Capital Campaigns with Andrea Kilstead. Now, I also have to share with you, that's not available on the stream. So if you listen on Spotify, iTunes, et cetera, it's not available. And the reason is the episodes up to episode 50 really did not meet what's now our audio standards. So we took them off the stream, but you can actually go to our website and stream it directly from our website. So go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com, and if you can bear the bad audio, listen to episode 39. And also, I want you to consider episode 165. That was with Patton McDowell, Four Tips for Efficient and Effective Fundraising. That, my friends, is our show for this week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help you and your nonprofit thrive. And hold up, folks. I've not done what the lawyers make me do yet. Remember, I'm just a podcast host, not an accountant or a lawyer. And this show and the consulting practice don't deal in tax, legal, or accounting advice. For those serious matters, track down a certified professional in your area and leave the podcasting and nonprofit consulting to me.